All right. Well, welcome to our midweek service. Uh, we're going to go ahead and get started in the book of Philippians, and we've been over there in chapter 4. Uh, hopefully we get a little bit more traction through here as we get to closer to wrapping up the end of the book. And uh, we'll see how far we can get tonight. But let's go ahead and open with a word of prayer, and then we'll get uh, started with uh, the lesson tonight. Dear Heavenly Father, again, we are very thankful to be here, and we're thankful, Lord, that we can be in your uh, house and that we can come here and just receive instruction from you. And we're so thankful for your word that you've preserved for us. It's perfect. It's uh, without error. And, uh, Lord, you've given the Holy Spirit to teach us and to guide us. And, Lord, I just pray that tonight our hearts would be very soft and receptive to it. And, Lord, especially as we look to uh, this issue of strength and as we look to this uh, um, issue of uh, our mindset and how it needs to match that of uh, Christ. And I pray, Lord, that we would just endeavor and purpose in our hearts to do that, that, Lord, we would glorify you, that we would honor you with all that we do in our lives, that we would please you. Again, Lord, I just thank you for this time. Thank you for those that are here. And again, I just pray, Lord, you'd be for those that uh, are not feeling well, and specifically we think of... Uh, uh, Noel, who is uh, not feeling well, and Lord, we just pray that you would uh, heal her up and uh, bring us back, bring her back to us soon as well. Uh, and uh, again, Lord, I thank you for all that you've done for us. And this I ask in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, Jake did ask prayer for Noel. Uh, she is under the weather, not feeling good. Um, and uh, I guess it's hit her pretty hard. So please make sure you're in prayer for her. Uh, a couple other people have uh, come down with some sniffles and some things of that nature. So, again, be cautious about, you know, <clears throat> how that works. Uh, all my stuff is still related to the amount of time that I spend outdoors. It just gets worse. If I don't spend time outdoors, it gets better. And then I go outside, and then it gets worse, and it's, yeah. So I'm going to be so thankful when allergies don't exist. I'm just going to say that that's, that's what I'm looking forward to in eternal life. And you're like, well, that's pretty shallow. Well, I'm sorry, <laughs> but uh, that's what I look forward to. <clears throat> uh, I'm just, I'm, I'm thankful for what I have here. Um, but just looking forward to that. So in chapter four of the book of Philippians, uh, we see over there, uh, we left off right around, uh, verse 13. That is uh, a verse that should be fairly familiar. Uh, it's going to be one that, uh, if you haven't heard it before, you're going to probably hear it many, many times, uh, after this. It's going to be one that is going to be very clearly, uh, guiding and directing our thought process. And in verse 13, it says, I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. And again, here he is, he's talking about this issue of uh, how they were caring for him, how they had uh, come about uh, from going a direction where they were uh, uh, lacking in their service towards other believers. Uh, Epaphroditus had to come in and uh, was nigh unto death to try to uh, uh, provide what they weren't providing. And uh, they obviously, there was a change of heart. Uh, the Lord worked on them. They, they decided to get back into what they were doing. They demonstrated that care for Paul. They provided for him in his need. And here he is. He's making it clear. He's saying, look, you know, these aren't things that, that I'm necessarily asking for because he doesn't want to heap it upon himself. He's not one of those TV evangelists that, you know, he needs to make sure that he's got his Royal Rolls Royce filled up and, you know, that he's got a, a mansion on each coast and, uh, 
you know, uh, so on and so forth. He's not looking for anything of that nature. He's not looking to heap riches upon himself, but he's very thankful for what they have done, for the giving heart that they do have. And uh, we'll see a little bit more about this. But verse 13 is right in the middle of all of it because he's talking about how they actually were going to be giving of their uh, poverty. I want you to quickly take your Bibles, keep your place there, and turn over to the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians. And, uh, you know, obviously they, they had some situation where there was not an opportunity to provide, to help, and, and do what they wanted, and, and uh, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 specifically. And uh, there was a period of time where they weren't able to do that, but here we see Paul talking about them and talking about those in the Macedonia area. And in verse 1, here he is talking to the church at Corinth about those other believers. And in verse uh, 1, it says, Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit to the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, how that in a great trial of their affliction, of affliction, the uh, abundance of their power, of their joy and their deep poverty abounded under the riches of their liberality. Here they are, uh, going through a difficult time, going through a trial, going through a situation where, uh, they really don't have it. And yet what they did is they, they, they went down and they pulled from whatever they could pull. And it was, as he says here, uh, uh bounded under the riches of their liberality. They, they, they gave, they had a certain mindset. And what enabled them to do that is Christ. Is Christ. It's that strength that's there that they need. And what we find is, is regardless of whether we're talking about finances, regardless of whether we're talking about ability, regardless of whether we're talking about time, those, those things that, that we've been given of God, we are to obviously give of them. And when we receive something from God, there should be that desire to obviously give it back. You go over to Ephesians chapter 4 and it talks about the individual that is the thief. And it tells uh, very specifically that the thief needs to change their mindset, needs to change their heart and what their desire is. And it's not just about taking, it's not just about uh, stopping stealing, but what it becomes is it becomes the thief becomes a giver because he labors with his hand, not to just give, you know, provide for himself, but he labors with his hands that he is able to give to those that are in need. So instead of becoming a taker, he does a complete 180 and he becomes a giver. So the same mindset that we see with, with that, with the book of Ephesians, we see found throughout scripture. That giving mentality, that giving spirit, the willingness to do that is something that is, it comes from God. The strength to be able to do that is found very clearly here. Now, I understand that it makes it very evident that it is all things. So we're not just talking about giving, but we're talking about the Christian life in general. In order to go through the Christian life, in order to actually get to a point of where we're living for Christ daily, we have to rely on his strength. We have to rely on Christ's strength. Uh, this is a, This is even a principle that we find in the Old Testament, just turn to the book of Psalms. Let's go to the Psalms and, and, and take a look at uh, chapter 19. Psalms chapter 19. Let's take a look at a couple of the Psalms that are, are, are really clearly going to anchor this thought process of where our strength is. You know, some people think that they're strong. 
Uh, like I said, when I was in college and I was doing all of the weightlifting and the weight training and stuff like that, you'd get these guys in there and they're just these buff guys and they think that they can lift everything. And they, they, they think that they are, that they're more powerful than everyone else. They think all of this stuff and, and, and inevitably somebody shows them up. And it was always funny when, when it was just like this little petite lady that would walk up and she's about 40 years old and here you got this 20, uh, a 20 year old guy and he's sitting there lifting these barbells and he screams and he gets about 10 of them down and he's all, with, he thinks he's buff. And here comes this 40 year old lady and she just bends down and she grabs the same barbell that he had and she does 30 reps and then sets it down and doesn't even look like she broke a sweat. And you just, I mean, you, you have to laugh because it becomes hilarious. When, when I was uh, learning how to, 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 to climb the rock climb, um, when uh, the, my instructor was teaching me and he noticed something about me, he said, I don't climb like everyone else that climbs. He said, I actually climb like a climber. And that's why he was perplexed because he thought I had actually had training in it before. And I'm like, no, I said, it just makes common sense. Because when you're climbing and you're doing like a rock wall or a rock face or something of that nature, if you use all of your upper body strength, to pull yourself up, you will exhaust yourself halfway up the t- uh, uh, up the the scale. You won't you won't be able to make it to the top. And he said he sees all these guys that come in like from the gym that are huge, you know, upper bodies, and they get up there and they think that you know their legs are dangling and they're trying to climb up there like you know some sort of primate and they're going crazy and and they get to about halfway, maybe three quarters, and they can't do it anymore and then they let go and of course the leg catches them and they rappel down and and they're fine. But the strength in order to get up there, the strength was with your core. The strength was with the legs. There was some strength that was needed in the arms, but it wasn't necessarily the biceps. It was in here. They worked different muscles than what they thought. So when we talk about the strength of the Lord, we have to realize that it's not all about our physical strength. Because we can sit there and boast all day long about how strong we are. I'm definitely not as strong as I used to be. It happens with age. And everybody that's older said amen. <laughs> because, you know, you just, it, it happens. You just, you know, you don't have time to weight lift. You don't do things like that. And, you know, pretty soon you realize there's cool devices that help you open the jars. There's cool devices that help you do other stuff. You don't need to expend the energy if you don't have to. Because you, you start realizing you need to conserve energy here so that you can actually make it through the day. <laughs> So you start looking at that and you're going, okay, well, I, if I don't have to spend energy there, then I'm not going to. But if you take a look at Psalm chapter 19, and specifically at verse 14, here's where the psalmist says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. So here he is closing out this chapter 19, and I want you to notice what surrounds this whole concept of strength and redemption. It's what he thinks about. Here he is, he's saying, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart. Well, what's going to come out of our mouth is what we are going to be thinking in our heart. Jesus Christ made that very clear in the Gospels. So here we are looking at this, and we see that here he is saying, he is my strength. 
sometimes it is very difficult for us to control the flesh. And, and when we look at the flesh, we realize how weak it really is. But sometimes it seems like a giant in our life. Have you ever tried to control what you say in the heat of a moment? Have you ever tried to, you know, uh, uh, if you will, overcome a temptation with your physical flesh? You realize how weak it is. You realize how weak it is. But that's understandable because we don't want the strength found in our flesh. We want the strength found in Jesus Christ. Turn over to 2 Corinthians again. Let's go back over there. Point out another situation specifically, again, related to Paul. In uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12... Here's this situation that uh, Paul describes, again, one that we visited somewhat frequently. It says in verse 7, <coughs> Unless I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. So he needed some extra help keeping his pride in check. Sometimes people ask, why am I going through what I'm going through? And, you know, there's a whole host of reasons why that can happen. And I want to make sure that I'm very clear with this. I'm not saying that this is necessarily the case in every application, which is why there should be a meditation of our hearts upon the Word of God, which is why we should constantly be searching and trying our hearts according to Scripture and having the Lord do that and reveal to us wherein things are incorrect in our thought process, in our heart, and in our desires. But many times what happens is we go through afflictions and we go through trials because that's what keeps our pride in check. It's humbling. Why is it humbling? Because then you have to rely on the strength of God. You have to rely on Him and Him alone. Now, sometimes, obviously, they're brought about because of our own sins. Sometimes they're brought about because uh, of, uh, you know, just the conditions of the world. Sometimes, you know, that that, that uh, um, reaping weeds, if you will, in your life that you never planted, that just happened to sprout there, uh, you know, affliction like Job, things of that nature. Uh, <clears throat> sometimes it is brought about because of our own foolishness and our own iniquity. Yes, I get that. But here, you know, it, it, there, there obviously wasn't anything that was it was uh, seriously sinful in his life other than God wanted to make sure that he didn't get exalted above the, what he was. That he wasn't trying to get to the point. Because again, people have a tendency to do that. People will take somebody and they will lift man up and they will put him on a pedestal and they put him on a pedestal just to watch him fall. Just to watch him fall. People do that all the time. I mean, you, you, you see it happen all the, uh, you know, th- th- throughout history. You see it happen like in Hollywood. People will put these actors on the, oh, they're such great actors, they're such great people, and then they turn out to be some sort of pervert. And then immediately everybody starts blacklisting them and things like that, and and, and they fall. They fall. 
It's amazing that we still call them, calling it fall. When that is a scriptural principle. But here he says in verse 8, For this thing I besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from me. And God's comment to him is this, And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and necessities and persecution and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul realized that his strength was only going to be found in Christ. He realized that this was a necessity in his life. This this messenger of Satan to buffet him. And he, to a degree, he welcomed it because it was because he, with that, God was getting the glory in it. And that's the purpose behind it. When I say I can do all things, and then we end the, st- the sentence, then we are lifting ourselves up in pride. But when I say I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me, then the, the, then the obligation is put upon Christ. The obligation is, 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 if you will, for us to trust Him. The obligation becomes God's. And if he is capable of doing what he has done, which he very much is, from the creation of the world to our salvation, to the continuance of preserving our salvation, to providing for us, then it should make absolute sense that our strength should rest solely upon him. So that when we are asked to give in whatever area of our life it is, we turn to God and we say, I can only do this through you. I can't do this myself. Solomon said that. <clears throat> Here he is, a young king, and God comes to him and says, what do you want? And he's like, I just, I just want to know how to lead these people. He's like, I have no idea how to do this. God gave him wisdom. I mean, he could have asked for strength. He could have asked for, for might. He could have asked for riches. He could have asked for tons of things. Now, God gave him all of that because part of it was the results, if you will, of some things of wisdom. But the end result is is he needed the strength of God. Now, obviously, later on in life, he tried to do it in his own strength, hence the book of Ecclesiastes. Hence the things that he laments in there. The vanity. But here he is going through all of this and he's clearly expounding upon it saying, this is where my strength lies. Turn over to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians and turn to chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. In verse uh, 13 he says, Wherefore I desire that you faint not at my tribulation for you, which is your glory. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with his might by the Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the depth, what is, excuse me, the breadth and the length and depth and height 
And to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. That can only happen if Christ's strength is present. In verse 16, he makes it very clear to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. We don't need our flesh strengthened. So much effort is put towards the preservation of our flesh. And if we were to look at the percentages of what we do to help us spiritually versus what we do to help us physically, we will often find that in in life we have a tendency to want to lean more towards the preservation of flesh. Knowing what's for dinner often becomes more important than what we read in the Word of God. Knowing, you know, what we're going to do through the day becomes more important than trusting what's going to happen is going to be led of the Lord and that we look for the opportunities to give Him thanks and to be content and to give Him glory and to be a witness. And we begin to see that those things are not of the flesh, but it's the strength of his might of the inner man. That needs to be strengthened. And the reason that the flesh seems more powerful is because the inner man isn't strengthened by the spirit. Because we don't listen to the spirit, and we don't listen to the word of God, and we don't listen to what he wants us to do. And then we wonder why we fall to temptation. And the reason is, is because we need to endeavor... We need to truly purpose that we as believers will seek the strength of Christ in our life. Seek the strength of Christ. Go over to 2 Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 4. In 2 Timothy chapter 4. And um, we see him beginning to, to, to go through a list. And in verse 9, he says, Do thy diligence to come unto me. This is Paul talking to Timothy. He says, For Demas hath forsaken me, uh, having loved this present world, and departed unto Thessalonica, Cretans to Galatia, and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Take Mark and bring him with thee, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. And take his, which I have sent to Ephesus, the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus, when thou comest, bring with thee, and the books, but especially the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil. The Lord reward him according to his works. Of whom be thou ware also, for it hath greatly withstood our words. And my first answer, at my first answer, uh, no man stood with me, but for all, but all men forsook me. I pray God that it may not be laid to their charge. Now here he is talking about a very serious situation. Everybody's left Paul. Well, why has everybody left Paul? Everybody's left Paul because he's in prison. Oh, he's falsely imprisoned. He's imprisoned for Jesus Christ. He's in prison because the Jews want him. He's in prison because the Romans think that's the best way to protect him. I mean, there's all these things that happen because of this. And, and the end result is he's saying nobody nobody wants to stick around. Some people left because they went on to other part, parts of the ministry. 
Other people were not wanting to be with him and did him evil. Other people just abandoned the faith altogether like Demas and just left, who was at one point in time commended as a faithful servant. And here he's saying that the only person that's sticking around me is Luke. And he's saying, I just want you to come. Let's have some fellowship together. But in verse 17, I want you to see this. Even though he desires that physical contact with other believers, in verse 17 he says, Notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. Look, here's the situation. You are probably going to face, and you're a woman in time, in a moment in time in life, and if you don't, then you need to be thankful and you need to praise God. But if there is a point in time in your life where you realize that everybody has forsaken you, that all your friends have gone the other direction, that family no longer is communicating with you, and this is again for the right reason as in you're doing it because you're making a stand for Jesus Christ. You're making a stand for truth. You're refusing to compromise on who God is and what God has done. And there will be a point in time that it will come that you may face where it seems like nobody is your friend. Nobody is around you. That may happen. I pray it doesn't, but it may. If we continue long enough, it may. But this, I do know, Paul said, even though nobody stood with him, even though everyone else left, even though no one was around him save save Luke, he said, it was the Lord that strengthened him. It wasn't Luke, it wasn't anyone else, but it was the Lord. He relied on God. That's where he received his strength. What gets us through the difficult times, what gets us through the affliction, what gets us through the trials, what gets us through some of the things, it's just the reliance on God. It's a reliance on him and who he is. And and if we go back over there, and that verse is, is, if you will, one of the, the Christian classics, if you will, about how we view things, it's again about all things. And can is, a, is, if you will, one of those verbs that deals with the actual ability to do it. You remember how you would often get corrected about whether you, whether when you would go and ask and you would say, can I have this? And somebody would say, I don't know, can you have that? All the time in school, I remember, you know, child would raise their hand. Can I go to the bathroom? The teacher would go, ah, can you? And they're like, may I go to the bathroom, please? And then they're like, yes, you may go. But there was a permissive part. Can is about the ability. Can is about that ability. And what we find here is he gives us that ability. Any ability you have is from God. Your ability to take in air your ability to walk upright, your ability to pick up something, your ability to have cognitive thought, your ability to know where you are and not have to ask what's happening next, all of those things, that's God-given. That's God-given. 
And we should always be cognitive of that, and we should always be thankful for it. He says, notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. And there's such a great comfort that knowing nothing will separate us from God. There's such a great comfort with that. Going back over there to Philippians chapter chapter 3, and in verse 14, he says, notwithstanding, you have done well that you did communicate with my affliction. And here he is, he's saying, look, you're doing what is well. You're doing the right thing. And it's nice to be commended when the right thing is done. It seems like so often, you know, people will correct us for doing the wrong thing. But here he is, and again, he's not focusing on what they weren't able to do, other than just maybe a brief mention of it. But he's focusing now on this, saying, you've done well. You've you've made the right choice. In that you're, you're, you're communicating with my affliction. They're communicating with his problems. They're communicating with the issues he's going through. They're communicating with, with, with his trials being in jail. They're still, they're still having, if you will, a connection with Paul. They're not walking away. And, and, and he, they, you know, again, what they're doing is they're recognizing a need that he had. They're recognizing something that was necessary in his life and they provided for it. Without regard to to, to 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 what was going on in Paul's life. Because again, the Lord strengthened them to do it. The Lord gave them the ability. The Lord gave them the opportunity. The Lord provided everything that they needed to do what was necessary for Paul. Turn over the book of Galatians uh, uh, very quickly in Galatians chapter 6. This is also... Uh, repeated a little bit in similarity over in uh, 2 Thessalonians 3, but in Galatians chapter 6, <clears throat> here he says in, in verse 9, he says, And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. This is something that we need to understand. He begins talking about in the next few verses here the fruit that is going to abound under their account because of what they're doing. Because of the mindset of Christ. Because of the mindset of Christ, there has been much fruit. How do we know that? If you're here today and you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you're not trusting in your flesh, and you're not trusting in anything else, and you're not trusting in the goodness of mankind, and you're not trusting in anything of your own power, then you are the fruit of Christ. Because of that, you have seed that you get to bear, that the Holy Spirit works with you to grow you so that you will bear fruit more. And you're part of that. We're part of that. And what we find here is we find that he says, don't be weary in well-doing. And here again, we look at this and he says, look, you guys did well here. He's like, but, but, but often what happens is we sometimes get tired of constantly doing the right thing. Sometimes we get tired of constantly doing the right thing, driving the speed limit and everybody else is deciding to run the Indianapolis 500. Today we're, we're coming back from an, uh, an appointment to Abby and I and, and we're, we're driving down the road. 
And, and, and Abby made a comment. She's like, why is everybody driving like an idiot today? And they were. I mean, it was insane. Some guy on a motorcycle, he decides to just cut us off and just starts weaving through traffic. Well, that's how they get hit. Driving like that. Other people, you know, getting impatient and riding the bumper and riding it. And then as soon as they get the opportunity, they get in that one lane that's open and then they just gun it. And sometimes we get weary about that. Sometimes we imagine ourselves putting on the goggles, slapping on the helmet, becoming Mario Andretti. If you don't know who that is, then, you know, I guess I just dated myself. Mario Andretti, A.J. Foyt, Rick Mears, those guys. Those are the guys I grew up with. <clears throat> some of that, some of these other guys now today. We envision that. But we shouldn't get to the point of where we're weary in doing that. Paul commends them and says, look, you've done well. You've done well in the fact that you're continuing to communicate. And I'll tell you this, whether it's work, whether it's relationships, whatever it is, communication, communication is generally the issue. It's generally the issue. Why do we have problems to get frustrated at work? Communication. Why do we have problems to get frustrated in relationships, friendships, family, spouses, children? Communication. All comes down to that. Oddly enough, the stuff that comes out of our mouth. The stuff that we do, the stuff that we don't do. Our conversation. Many times, it's the way we talk to ourselves, too. And here they are, they're willing to communicate. They're willing to step forward. And with their actions with the purpose of their heart that the Lord had enabled them to do, they did something that was good, that gave God glory. They gave him pleasure. As we continue on in, ver- in the next verse here, uh, here, here he says in verse 15, he says, Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. Here he's saying, look, they initially... One of the very first questions that they begin to ask, and again, just to remind you, these are the individuals that are like the Philippian jailer and Lydia, who gave of her own household to Paul and, and uh, um, uh, Silas at the time. Those individuals fed them, fed, you know, helped them out, clothed them, did whatever they could, all those things, bathed them, mended their wounds. All of those things, the very first thing that they begin to ask about is, how can we give? You know, the automatic response to salvation should be, we have received so much. Salvation is such a great gift. It's called the gift of God. Multiple places in Scripture. If somebody was to give you a great gift, you'd be excited about it. You'd be excited about it. I was just talking to somebody the other day. They were given a great gift. It was an unexpected thing. 
And immediately their first thought was, I need to give of it. This was not something that I was expecting to receive. I'm going to turn around and give in that fashion. And we find that that, that, that should be the, the, the mentality. That should be the desire. Because salvation was God giving to us. It was God giving to us. They had a desire to give and they wanted to know how to do it. They wanted to know how to accomplish it. When do we do it? Do we do it this way? Do we do it that way? I mean, they were having conversations with him wanting to know these things. Not just for the purpose of, uh, uh, of if you will, feeling better about themselves, but they heard about other people's needs. They heard about other individuals that were in trouble. They heard about others that needed some help. And they realized that this was a part of the gospel. Why? Because the gospel is giving. For God so loved the world that he gave. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Over and over and over again, we see that purpose that's there. We see that. You find it in the Old Testament. You find it in the New Testament. You find it throughout God's working with mankind. All of these things about giving. And it was their pattern to do this. And here he is, he's departing from these churches, and he says, look, nobody else asked this question except you guys. Nobody else wanted to know about it. It became their ministry. You know, some people are good at doing certain things. Some people are good at administration. Some people are good at teaching. Some people are good at preaching. Some people are good at singing. Some people are good, uh, uh, you know, with technology. Some people are good with, with other areas, whatever it may be. Uh, but some people, they're just good about that whole process of giving. And it's who they are. And this is who it was with the Philippians. And this is why there's such a strong connection with that purpose of giving and the mind of Christ. Because the mind of Christ is a giving mind. It's because his heart was there to give. To give for us. To give to us. This is what they wanted to know. In verse 16 here he says, For even in Thessalonica, you sent once and again under my necessity. This was a pattern. This wasn't just a one-time thing of doing well, but it was a pattern of good works that they had established that, yeah, they may have slipped a little bit because of lack of opportunity, but now they were back at it again. Now they were doing what was right. Now they were giving the way that they were supposed to be, that they were expected to, the way that they had purposed in their hearts. And I dare say that every Christian has to purpose that way. When we approach the work of Christ, when we approach what we do in the church, it is all about giving. My body is about giving to its other parts. As I mentioned before, it kind of looks silly 
If somebody decides not to use their hands to pick up a fork and, and begin to eat their mashed potatoes, it would look silly if somebody just put their whole face down on the, 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 the plate and began to like lap it up like a dog. You'd be like, dude, what? There's very few cultures that that's even acceptable. But therein, my hands give to my mouth, my mouth chews to give nutrients to the rest of the body with the, everything else that's there so that the rest of my body can do what it needs to do because if, if that cycle isn't there of my hands putting food into my mouth, my mouth chewing it to begin digestion, going through the process, releasing nutrients, then my eyes aren't going to see what they need to see so I'm not going to be able to see the food to grab the food. To use my hands to work to take my feet to go get it at the store or pull it out of the garden or wherever we get it from. It becomes necessary as a harmonious giving occurs within our own bodies. The same is true for the body of Christ. The same is true for the body of Christ. And again, I'm not just talking about anything of finances. I'm talking about the whole concept of giving. I'm talking about the whole concept of giving. <clears throat> And we see again, this was, this was something that he clearly, he, 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 he identifies and he says, you've done it many times now. And it was because he had a necessity. It wasn't a want. And we often hear the difference between want and need. We teach that young, to young children. They, they go into the store and they see something. Daddy, I want this. Well, you don't need it, so you don't get it. But I want it. That's called lust and covetousness. (laughs) Whereas need is something that's needed. Something that's a necessity for life. Food and raiment, therewith be content. Some things that are, and he says they provided for his necessities. God used them to provide, and Paul realized it wasn't from the Philippians necessarily, it was through the power of God enabling them to do that and through his strength working in them to do these things. And again, it was because of a willingness of heart, which we'll get to here in a second. And here he is, and he makes sure, and he says here in verse 17, he says, not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. What he wanted to see is he wanted to see them grow and produce the right kind of fruit. He wanted them to see, he wanted to see spiritual fruit in their life that they would be able to turn around and give in such a way. That fruit was something that he got to participate for, you know, partake in. Others in, in Jerusalem participated in, in, in the receiving of that. All of these things we see that this becomes the mindset of the Christian life. And he says, look, it's not because I wanted it. It's not because I was sitting there going, Oh, I hope they get me a gift. Oh, I hope they get me a gift. Oh, I hope they get me a gift. He was trusting that God would provide. Because he had learned how to be content, whether he was going to be abound or whether he was going to be abased, he learned those things. 
And he mentions the, you know, that in scripture in several places. Turn over again to, 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 or turn to, to the book of Luke. We haven't been to the book of Luke, but turn to the book of Luke chapter six. <clears throat> Luke chapter six. <clears throat> and, uh, in this passage, <clears throat> there, there's a verse in verse 38. It says, give and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down. Shaken together, running over, shall men give into your bosom. For with the same measure that you meet with all, it shall be measured to you again. It's the principle of giving. How much you give is how much you receive from God. Now, again, I have heard this preached many times in relationship to finance. But as I always say, check the context. Let's back up just a little bit. <clears throat> What's the context here? <clears throat> well, let's go back over there to, to verse 30 where he starts. He says, give to every man that you asketh of thee and of him that taketh away the goods, ask them not again. As you would that men uh, would, should do to you, ye do ye also to them likewise. For if you love them which love you, what thank have ye? For sinners also love those that love them. But if you do good to them that uh, do good to you, what thank have ye? For sinners also do the same. If you lend to them of them whom, uh, uh, excuse me, to them of whom ye hope to receive, what thank have ye? For sinners also lend to sinners and receive as much again. Now here he is. He talks about lending. He talks about giving. He's talking about look. Don't give with the expectation of getting back. Look, if I give somebody a book. I give them a book without the concept of ever getting it back. If I get it back, cool. Which is why sometimes I buy multiple copies of books. Because <laughs> if I like to give it out, then I'm going to buy multiple copies of the books because I want everybody to, to enjoy that. But but here's the concept. So many people give in a reciprocity manner. If I give to you, you'll give to me. You scratch my back, I scratch yours. Good night. If our politicians could just learn that about giving, I tell you, our Congress would be totally different. Because look at what the next concept is in relationship surrounded by verses with giving. But love your enemies, in verse 35, and do good and lend, hoping for nothing again, and your reward shall be great, and ye shall be the children of the highest, for ye is kind and, uh, uh, unto the unthankful and to the evil. Be ye therefore merciful, as your Father is also merciful. Judge not, and ye shall not be judged. Condemn not, and ye shall not be condemned. Forgive, and ye shall be forgiven. And then notice the punctuation. It's a continuing thought in verse 38. You know what that means? What he's talking about giving, love, mercy, forgiveness. Why is it so hard to give those things? Because I dare say, we have not dealt with the issue of pride in our own lives. We have not come to a full realization 
of the complete love of God in our life, the mercy he's had towards us, and the forgiveness of sins that we have. The Philippians got a hold of that. The Philippians got a hold of that. Let's go back over there to that passage. And he says here, in verse 18 over in Philippians chapter 4, but I have all and abound. You know, he's content. He has every, I mean, he's like, I have everything I need. I have everything I need. What more could I ask for? I'm sure our minds could probably conjure up something. But really, are we content with what we have? He says, but I have all and abound. Not just saying I'm content, but I have more than I need. I have more than I deserve. I have more than I could ever possibly want. Again, I want you to think about this just for a second. If you were to die right now and you're trusting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have eternal life. That blows our finite little minds. We will be without sin and without pain and without death. That blows our minds. And then on top of that, we have a mansion prepared for us in heaven. That blows my mind. What does that even look like? In heaven? I mean, you know, Pacific Northwest is beautiful. But it has nothing on heaven. I haven't even seen what heaven looks like. Little brief descriptions that it is, is it's a pretty fantastic place. Now there's a few stops along the way that I, I you know, I, I, I want to see some things. Really want to meet Jonah. Really do. Sorry. <clears throat> want to meet some other people. But I'll tell you this. I'm probably going to be staring at those seraphim and cherubim for a little bit. Going. Wow. That's amazing. But here he says, but I have all and abound. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you. An odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing unto God. Now, they didn't send him a bag of incense, all right? They didn't give him a subscription to Sensi. And they didn't give him you know, a bunch of candles, all right? <clears throat> That's not what it was about. This wasn't aromatherapy. What it was, was they provided for him. And when we give offerings like that throughout Scripture, what do we find? It sends a sweet smell to God. It sends a sweet smell to God. I want you to turn to one of the very first ones. Turn over to the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis chapter 8. When we give, the question is, is we got to ask, what does it smell like? What does it smell like to God? Here's Noah getting off the ark in Genesis chapter 8. And we find here, what is uh, what is uh, uh, Noah, did I say Jonah? I meant Noah. I, I, I may have messed up. If I did, I, whatever. 
Anyways, verse 20, it says, Noah builded an altar unto the Lord and took of every clean beast and every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings unto the altar. And the Lord smelled a sweet savor. And the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more every living thing as I have done. And he gives us a wonderful thing. He gives us something called the rainbow, which has seven colors. Remember that. And count every other thing they call a rainbow. And see how many are on there. Anyways, moving on. Uh, <laughs> but in verse 21, it says he smelled, what? A sweet savor. Now look. I, he, I don't want to be sacrilegious and say God loves a barbecue. But but that's what was cooking on there. You ever have that during the summertime? You walk outside to get in your car, and immediately you're hit with the odor, the sweet smell of ribs on somebody's grill, burgers cooking, nice big tenderloin, some sort of roast, slow cooking, and you're just like, you know. For the next three minutes, you're standing out there and you're willing to be late for whatever it is you're going to go to just to sit there and smell that. To smell that. And I dare say, you know what? God likes to smell stuff like that when it comes to our giving of ourselves, our offering. And again, look, I'm not, I'm not preaching on money here. I'm preaching on the concept of giving. Whatever it is. You know what, you know what God wants before He wants anything that has to do with your finances? He wants your heart. Because if you give and you haven't given your heart, then you don't understand giving. The best smell that God can ever smell is when we give our heart wholly to Him and to Him alone. And that's when the smell starts. And it continues. But I tell you, we start messing with the apothecary. We start playing around with those scents. We start putting in there what we think we want. What we think smells good to us may not necessarily smell good to God. Aaron's sons messed with strange fire. God took them out. He warned them. In the book of Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy... Don't mess with the recipe. Stick to it. Don't get creative. Because this is what I like to smell. And I tell you, that stands true for what God wants in our life. Don't mess with God's will. Stick to the process, the plan, the path, the order, if you will, the recipe of Christian life. Because that smells good to God. That smells good to Him. We've only got a couple more verses here, and I kind of want to wrap this up. But here he says that it was an odor, a sweet smell, a sacrifice, and it was acceptable. What we give should be acceptable. It shouldn't be the leftovers. It should be the first fruits. It shouldn't be when... When we've lived our life, and this happens a lot with youth. Well, I want to go out and live my life. I want to do what I want to do before I start serving God. 
I want to go out there and experiment. I want to have fun. I want to enjoy all those things. I want to, I want to do all these things before I even think about doing anything with God and settling down, having a family and having kids. Well, if you're doing that, you're already too late. First thing you do is you start off with God. You start off with God. Because I guarantee you all the rest of that stuff isn't worth it. It's not worth the heartache. It's not worth the pain. It's not worth the anguish. It's not worth the trials. It's not worth the affliction. It's not worth any of it. Give yourself to God first. Before a career, before a spouse, before you have children, before you do anything, give it to him. That's acceptable. That's acceptable. And is well-pleasing. Well-pleasing to God. Any sacrifice should smell good, should be acceptable, and should please our Savior. Why? Because he gave so much, and God said that that was a sweet smell. That sacrifice on the cross was a sweet smell. Because it paid for our sins. Because it demonstrated his love, his mercy, and his forgiveness. For us who are undeserving of it, that we should receive such grace. But we find verse 19, it says, But God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. The provision is always going to be God's. And that's the mindset. The mindset is when we start thinking about ourselves, it's an automatic, I need to give. The mindset is already to be that form of a servant, to humble ourselves, to be of no reputation, to be obedient, all of those things that we saw in chapter 2. The mindset here is is that I'm going to give because this is what God asks of me. I'm going to give in such a way that it pleases Him, in such a way that it's acceptable to Him. I'm going to give in such a way that it is done by His strength, So that he gets the glory in the end. So he's the one that receives the accolade. So he's the one that receives the thanks. And he's the one that receives the praise. And we find here he says God is going to provide. God will provide it. It's God's provision. He says God's going to supply all your needs. God provided for Paul and his necessity through the Philippians. And he'll do the same for the Philippians as well. And we find there, as he continues to go on, in verse 20, he gives, if you will, the whole concept behind why we need to have that heart, or why we need to have that mind. Now, unto God our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. And I'll tell you this. The mind of Christ was always this. The glory of the Father. The glory of the Father. The glory of the Father. And this should be the mindset with which we ask everything. Is it for God's glory? What I'm saying, what I'm thinking, what I'm doing, is that going to be giving God glory? Is that praiseworthy for Him? Because if it's of my own power, then it's an awful smell. Because if it's of my own power, then it's not going to be pleasing. If it's of my own power, then it's for my own glory. 
It has to be of God. It has to be of Christ. It has to be of His Spirit. If not, God's not getting the glory. God's not getting the glory. Now he closes this book with this. He closes with the salutation in verse 22, or excuse me, verse 21, where he says, Salute every uh, saint in Christ Jesus, brethren, which are with me, greet you. All the saints salute you, chiefly they that are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now, he obviously says, and he wants God's grace to continue in their life. God's grace shows up at the cross, and God's grace shows up continually throughout the life of a believer. That's the only way we get through this stuff, is God's grace. God's grace is his mindset. God's grace is his strength. God's grace is every provision he's ever had for us. That's God's grace. And we have to receive it as such. And we have to communicate that. We have to minister it according to Ephesians chapter 4. That we minister grace unto the hearers. That we turn around and whatever God has given us, we turn around and give to someone else. That becomes the content. That's what we live in our Christian life. And we find that here in the same same situation with, with the salutation. Why? Because we've got the care for the saints. And we have Paul, if, if you will, uh, uh, um, he wants them to greet as the way Paul greets people. With the salutations, you go through and you begin to read all the salutations that are found in every single last one of the, the epistles. You will find how he expresses his care, even if he's going through a corrective letter, like say the Galatians or something, or with Philemon. He goes through and he expresses his care, his love, and the central theme of Jesus Christ and God as what we need to be focusing on. And the same thing is true as he goes through and he says, I want you to salute every saint. Don't exclude. Just because you don't like them. Still got to salute them. You still have to greet them. You still have to care for them. And he says, all the brethren over here are doing the same. And interestingly enough, I want you to notice here, one of the things that is probably often overlooked in verse 22. Whose household? Caesar's. Who is Caesar? Now that's not Caesar. This is Caesar. The ruler. God had allowed Paul to be a witness to people that were in Caesar's household and they continued as saints in Caesar's household. You know what that means? That Caesar probably was witnessed to so many times. Not only because of the actions, because of the words, but because of the communication of who Christ was to them. And he makes it clear, those saints, they greet you too. They greet you too. And he says, chiefly. Why is that? Well, these are ones that wanted to express how much they cared 
for, if you will, conquered people. Which is exactly what the Macedonians were. How much they had concern over them. How much they had a desire for. How much they were probably praying for. And as he's writing this letter, and they find out, somebody comes, one of the servants of Caesar, what you doing, Paul? Writing a letter? Oh, who to? Philippians. Oh, 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 say hi for me. Say hi for me. And then somebody hears that and goes, say hi for who? 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 Who's writing what? Who's who? who? Paul's writing a letter to the Philippians. Oh, 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 say hi for me. Say hi for me. Why? Because they loved them. They were brothers and sisters in Christ. And they had care. So much so that Paul had to write down, chiefly, because they were expressing that to them. That above all, these saints that were in the ruler's house, don't ever forget that the impact that you have in somebody else's life may have a greater impact in someone else's. They, in turn, had an effect on Caesar. One of the lesser known things about Paul's ministry shows up in a little, what sometimes people consider a footnote that they casually read through. I like reading those closing remarks of Paul. He mentions people and you're like, who is that? And you go search them out. And to me, it's always interesting. Chiefly, the saints that were in Caesar's household. The book of Philippians is all about the mind of Christ. Brethren saluting one another. Brethren caring for one another. Brethren engaging in that behavior. is one of the greatest minds of Christ. Every time he'd come to the disciples, every time he'd appear to them, things like, be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. How many times did he show up with that same mentality? The care, and even if it was a corrective act, he always expressed how dear they were to him. And if you're a saint today and you're trusting Christ as your Savior, you're dear to our Lord and Savior. And we should be dear to each other. Above all, a mind of Christ. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you again for this time. I thank you again, Lord, for the book of Philippians. Lord, I thank you a little bit for the liberty tonight to go a little bit past our normal hour, Lord, to finish this book up. But Lord, I want to thank you for it. I want to thank you for what it teaches us. I pray, Lord, that we would endeavor to just think on it, that we'd endeavor to go back, read it again, that we'd endeavor to go back and learn from notes that it were taken, and endeavor to go back and hear from your Spirit over and over and over again, Lord. And each time we go through, we find something new. And Lord, I just pray you'd be with us throughout the rest of this week. I pray, Lord, that you would just guide and direct our thoughts, and you would guide and direct our hearts in a way and a path that, Lord, is yours because we have acknowledged you in every single way. That, Lord, we have acknowledged you as our source of strength, as our source of provision. 
as the source of doing what is good in this life to please you and to honor you and give you all glory. These things I ask in your Son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.